You are listening to Radio Data, a podcasting radio where we talk about data, cloud, analytics and AI with different guests, different hosts and in different segments. This segment is called Data Journey, where our guests talk about how data moves around in their company, what technologies they use and what value data brings to their products. Radio Data is recorded with passion by Getting Data. Getting Data is a data management company founded by ex-Spotify data engineers who now build similar cloud, AI and data engineering solutions for other companies. Hello everyone. Today our expert guest is Victoria Bukta. Victoria works as a senior data engineer at Shopify. Shopify is the e-commerce company that I believe most of you recognize. Shopify is also a very early adopter of cloud and big data technologies. I will be talking with Victoria about her experience with big data technologies, especially Apache Iceberg and the data engineering projects that she has been implementing recently. Let's start with the introduction. Victoria, could you please tell us more about yourself, your, your background and your company? Sure. So um, I'm based in Toronto and I'm actually a graduate of the University of Toronto. So like I'm Toronto born and raised basically. Um, and I studied computer science and Shopify was like my first job outside of university. So I did some internships beforehand. Um, but Shopify, it's one of the biggest Canadian, I want to say the biggest, like, well-known uh, Canadian tech companies. And they had an office in Toronto. And even though Toronto is a big city, a lot of people know each other. So actually, one of my mentors at the time referred me. And that's how I got into Shopify. And they also did presentations at my, at my university. Um, I remember the first time... I saw Toby, our C, uh, CEO, was actually, they had sponsored a hackathon at U of T. And uh, here's this guy who comes on stage with no shoes on. Like whenever Toby speaks, he's always in socks and he has like the funkiest looking socks. So that was like super memorable. And at that time when I was in school, this was like back in maybe 2013, um, no one really knew what Shopify was. It was still like this little startup kind of thing. People didn't know about it globally. So things have definitely changed. When I joined Shopify, I was hired as a data engineer. And it was really, really funny because at the time, I didn't even know what a data engineer was. I was just some kid who graduated from university, who studied computer science, um, I focused my studies on, um, on systems. So I took lots of hardware classes, um, some, some work in distributed systems. I was also interested, I guess, in data, but like in AI. So I took some machine learning classes and things like that, some computer vision classes. And I guess it was a natural fit, but kind of coming out of school, I only thought there was two routes. There was front-end development, there was back-end development, and you kind of choose. So I remember going through the interview process at Shopify, and at the last uh, pro that, that last interview was just about like why I wanted to join and why I wanted to be a data engineer. And I was like, 
I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it was it was super, super funny. Um, but I liked data and I liked the potential um, of the things that you could do with it. So it seemed like a natural fit. And the team that I joined was called Data Acquisition. And primarily the team, and it's now been rebranded. I'm on the same team, we're called uh, Lake House. But um, we're, we're responsible for the raw data ingestion into the data warehouse or data lake. So we're the, we collect data from relational databases, um, event data from Kafka, or even like API data from third parties that like Shopify might integrate with. So we were responsible for all of that. No transformations at all. The only transformations we do is basically around PII. If anything has to be scrubbed before it gets into the warehouse, or even if we do collect PII information, uh, doing things like retention on, on that data. So it's purged after so many days. Um, so that was what I started doing. And at the time, I kind of became the de facto maintainer of this tool called Longboat, which was the our statement-based replication system. So essentially, it would run a series of SQL queries to get data out of a relational database and dump it to GCS. So we're completely on uh, Google Cloud Platform. So we would collect this data, we would write it as Parquet files to GCS. And I think at, similar to like a lot of other companies, uh, we basically, our data set uh, constituted like, you'd have a folder that was like your data set name. So let's say like Shopify shops, this represents all the shops that we have at Shopify. And then you'd have a bunch of timestamp folders, which was our way of versioning the data. And then in one of those folders, you have all your Parquet files. Um, and I think this is a really good segue into what I'm doing now with Apache Iceberg. You can imagine that stops scaling and a lot of the other, we ran into problems where it was really hard to make changes under the hood to how we store our data or even maintain our data after we write it. So, you know, especially in the case of the Kafka data, you, you're delivering data on a schedule. We would do like micro batch um, and you can have lots of small files and this is not performance from a query perspective. So you might wanna go back after the fact and rewrite coalesce those files into larger files. So uh, this would be more optimal from the query engine on the read side. But doing that with the system that we had in place, I guess at this point I would call it a table format and our table format is basically these timestamp folders. Um, it was really hard to change the data uh, without any downtime to consumers. You'd have to basically lock the table completely. and that's what made Iceberg really appealing is that now we can have transactions with our data and consumers. And for us, a consumer is um, basically the other modeling teams. We have modeling teams on top of the raw data who are running Trino, who are running Spark, and they have a framework on top of those systems for data scientists to build models. So it's, it's in there that they're, they need to refer to our data. And they were 
really tied to the implementation details of like these timestamp folders and how that was all laid out. So we're in this transition now of moving away from that and using iceberg, referring to everything as a table and being able to have transactions and that like we have the flexibility to change our data under the hood, like coalescing files and things like this without impacting those, those teams. It sounds really interesting. Uh, please let me rephrase. Do I understand correctly that your goal is to collect a lot of data from various data sources and then store them in a central location and you use Apache Iceberg as a format for your analytics tables. Then different teams can actually process and analyze this data using their favorite technologies, such as Spark or Trino. Exactly. And like, it was really funny, the way that we ended up at Iceberg, actually we weren't looking at modifying our table format at the very beginning. One other thing that I didn't mention that my team is responsible for is we produce a data set that we call a snapshot. But basically we get all these incremental changes from a relational database and you want to fold them together to produce what is the current state of the production table at a specific moment in time. So today at nine o'clock in the morning, this is what like the Shopify shops table looks like. We want to produce that as a data set for other people to build off of. Now, doing upserts to a immutable uh, file format like Parquet or Orc, like some sort of columnar format, is inefficient. Like it's immutable for a reason. You have to put the whole file into memory. You have to do your modification and write the file back down. So upserts are really, really difficult. So what I was really interested at first about Apache Iceberg, and this was back in 2019, was they had um, this proposal for their V2 spec, which is now in, uh, released, where you could do row level updates. And the way that you could do row level updates is by appending to your table what they called a delete file. And what the delete file is, it is basically a filter where you can specify which rows in the data set do you want to filter out. So with a combination of appending data files, appending delete files, and then more data files on top, you could essentially perform an upsert, but the you haven't actually rewritten any Parquet files. So the filtering happens on the read side. So this technique that they developed, they're calling it like merge on read. So the merging, the modification happens on the query engine side when um, someone is querying the data set. And what's so powerful about this is that I can accumulate updates until I deem that it's necessary, that I'm putting too much load um, on the read on like the query engine side, it now makes sense to actually perform the rewrite. And now I can almost have a streaming application performing upserts and deliver data much faster instead of before we would have um, data sets getting updated every like, let's say six hours, these snapshots getting uh, updated every six hours, maybe now I can produce them every 15 minutes, right? 
and then have a compaction job that runs like every hour, every two hours. And then as a data scientist, you can choose, do you want to query the data set um, at its freshest state? So you understand that your query might be slower because the query engine has to perform the, the upsert, or uh, do you want to query it like uh, the data set as of two hours ago, let's say, where the, the table has been optimized. So you can have that flexibility. So that was really interesting for us. If I understand correctly, you can also rewrite your data sets to avoid uh, expensive merge on read operations, right? Yeah, so you can rewrite the data sets so you can avoid merging on read. And you can basically collect the updates. And then when you have, you've, you've determined you have enough updates that it requires a rewrite, you can go rewrite the data set. Yes, uh, it's, it's very good especially because you mentioned that you use Google Cloud Platform. So I believe this might help you lower the costs of using the cloud in the pay-as-you-go pricing model by saving some uh, compute resources. Yeah, so it depends on how you have everything configured. So for us, uh, we store all our data as files in GCS. So there, there's a fixed cost for, for data right, for whatever you're storing. And storage is super cheap, like relative to, so let's say a service like BigQuery. Um, BigQuery is really expensive, especially when you start using it at scale. If you want to scan a lot of data, you're, you're paying for like basically every row that your query scans, um, you're paying per query. So for us, we, we have a team called Data Infrastructure that's in charge of uh, running our Trino clusters, our Spark clusters, and they just access the, the, the files in GCS. And by running all of that in the same physical data center, you don't have to pay for transfer costs um, of the data. So if you were to have data in two separate, like physically two separate um, uh, data centers, you would have to pay a transfer cost for the data to move to one place to another. You also told something interesting. Uh, you use Google Cloud Platform, but you also have a number of open source technologies in your data platform and data pipelines, such as Kafka, uh, Spark, Iceberg. And my question is, how do you choose uh, between open source and vendor-specific cloud-managed technologies? I think we have a really interesting history at Shopify because we were there for that pivot between people having to manage their on-prem data centers to cloud having a vast offering. So when I started at Shopify, we actually weren't on the cloud at all. We had our own on-premises data centers. And within my first year, there was a big move to the cloud. So of course you have to pick a cloud vendor. I think at the time, so this was 2017, 2018, um, at the time, Azure wasn't as developed. So you had two big cloud offerings, which was um, uh, AWS and GCP. Of course, Amazon being an e-commerce company is a big competitor. So maybe it's not the smartest choice. So basically that meant that 
Google was the natural choice at the time. And we, we ran a lot of open source software, um, but there is a lot of stuff. When we did move to the cloud, we adopted like BigQuery and some other services like uh, Dataflow. And I think as we've grown as a company, we've realized that we are big enough that it would make financial sense to manage those services ourselves and to have the flexibility and customizability to, to run our own forks and develop our own features internally to those projects. So actually over the last few years, I think we've actually made a, a conscious choice to choose more open source technology. It's like why Kafka and not PubSub, for example, right? We're moving away from uh, BigQuery to doubling down on Trino. Um, so we're making like all of those transitions right now. And I think that came with scale, really. So those, those cloud services, they're, they're super great if you don't have the staff and you don't have complicated needs. And at some point you outgrow that. Yes, I understand. However, when you mentioned that you have own Kafka cluster, is this the cluster that is managed by your colleagues at Shopify or it is a cloud managed service, for example, from Confluent? So that's a really good question. So we have our own internal Kafka team where we run our own uh, installation of Kafka. So we manage it all ourselves, yeah. And how large is Shopify in terms of data collected and processed so that it makes economical sense for you to run own installation of open source technologies on top of the cloud? Right. So in terms of, so I don't know about the whole platform as a whole, but I can speak to specifically my team that's doing ingestion. And we're kind of in a transition point because uh, we're adopting... Uh, anyway, so right now I would say that we probably collect close to like a petabyte of data, of data a day. Now, that doesn't mean that we're growing by a petabyte of data every single day because a lot of that data is PII data and gets purged from the warehouse after X number of days. So we have a lot of, and, and most of that data is, is stuff that's coming from front-end application. So we're doing lots of event collection. So every time you go to like a Shopify store and you're clicking around on, um, on a store or interacting with the checkout, there's all sorts of events being collected about user behavior. And this constitutes, I think, the biggest amount of, of data um, on our platform. Now, a lot of those events aren't very interesting. So there's lots of data science models and things that are doing all sorts of aggregations to get the important facts about what's happening out. So they don't actually need to hold all that data in the warehouse permanently. Um, but that can give you kind of a sense of scale of like how much data is actually coming in. It's definitely a very large scale. And I assume it will continue growing because of the obvious trend that consumers are shopping more and more online. So it's likely that you will have more data, more data sources, more pipelines, and more use cases in the future. Yeah, and maybe I can speak to the data sources one for just a second. And one of the big projects my team has been working on over the last year 
is the adoption of CDC data. So CDC standing for change data capture. So we're working on collecting every single change to a relational database, um, pumping that through a Kafka topic. That part is actually done by a separate team, but where we come in is collecting that data out of the Kafka topic and archiving it in the warehouse or the data lake um, using Apache Iceberg and uh, using Kafka Connect as like the consumer and then writing uh, iceberg tables. So that's the current project of my team. And this project hasn't been finished by any means. Um, we're kind of in the productionization phase right now, but you can imagine this will explode the amount of data that we're pumping into the data lake to have available to our data scientists. Does it also mean that you would like to reduce the latency of your pipelines and ingest data faster? Exactly. So have more data faster um, to have something that's a streaming application updating data sets. So basically we'll, we will be providing two different kinds of data sets. One is the CDC archive, which is like an append only table where you have every um, transaction to the database or every change to the database. And the other is that snapshot that I was talking about earlier, where we are doing the upserts and producing at a specific moment in time, this is what the production table looks like. Okay. And do you also use a technology called Debezium uh, for CDC? Yeah. So we use Debezium uh, for getting the events out of the databases. So it basically, for people who don't know, it basically tails the binary log, which is like an audit log of the production database. And this is uh, traditionally used for database replication between two databases. So if you wanna have like a primary secondary database to fall over to, but we're using it. And what Debezium does is it takes those events and you can pipe them to Kafka as Kafka events. So this is one more open source technology in your data pipelines. Yes. Awesome. We talked a lot about the technologies that you currently use, but let's talk about the future. Uh, what are new technologies that you think you will be evaluating or maybe even using at Shopify later this year or next year? So my biggest interest lately has been catalogs. So right now at Shopify and what we use for Iceberg, Iceberg, uh, you require like a catalog to keep track of your tables and changes to the tables. Um, we use a Hive Metastore to do that, which is quite traditional, another open source technology. Um, but there's new kinds of catalogs that have been coming out so I'm really interested in Project Nessie. There's another one called Lake FS. And I think last week uh, I was at the subsurface conference um, hosted by Dremio and they announced their catalog called Arctic, which is actually just a layer underneath it's, it's Nessie, but on top they have some extra stuff. Um, but what's really interesting about these new catalogs is that they're, they're saying that they wanna promise something like a Git-like experience for your data sets, for your tables. So think about, you know, you have your main branch, 
your, your published version of your table, you branch off of that. Uh, a data scientist, or maybe for machine learning, you're running a bunch of experiments. There's a bunch of stages to, to your experiments. You do some auditing and then you merge it you merge the changes into the, the main branch of your, your data set. So it's a kind of a, a non-linear way of dealing with versioning. And I think this is going to be the next like transformation. In my opinion, I think it will be the next thing that um, will take data lakes and, and data warehousing by storm. Yes, I totally agree with you. Uh, personally, I also see that there are new tools created and used for data catalogs, uh, data discovery, data lineage, and data quality. Uh, for example, Marquez or Amundsen, to name a few. Actually, all data companies uh, need such tools, but not all of them have started using them yet. Exactly. Yeah, and I think another big topic this is not like a technology, but I think another interesting thing that companies will have to start dealing with more is uh, data residency. And I know that there's been various privacy laws in different countries and different regions like the EU or in California that companies have had to adapt to. But I think it'll be a growing trend where consumers will want to say, use a product and say, like, I don't want my data to leave certain borders. Or maybe um, I think governments and regular, like regulated industry will become more and more strict on how companies treat their data. So say like in healthcare, if you're a health tech company, um, you know, most of the uh, data centers are in the United States. If you're an EU company, how do you feel about your medical data being stored over there? So I think people will become uh, are people are becoming more educated about the consequences and are becoming more sensitive to how they treat their data and how they how they expect companies to treat their data. And this will become an interesting revolution, I think, for data lakes and data warehousing. And you can kind of see the complicated problems that this proposes proposes. You know, storage is one thing, but what about compute? If you want to compute and model, what do, can my data leave the EU? Does it have to be modeled in the EU? What can leave the EU? Is it only some sort of ag aggregation? So these are like interesting problems that I think will, that will be longer term that we will have to figure out. That's true. Uh, there are many companies that have specific regulations for data residency. Uh, for example, today I talked to an engineering director from the healthcare company who will be speaking at the Big Data conference that we organized in late April this year. Uh, he told me that they are building a unified global platform for processing electronic medical records. Uh, they built it in, in the cloud and data residency is very important functionality for them and it impacts their data platform architecture in a very significant way. So in other words, they would love to build as unified solution as possible 
but they need to take into account many local requirements such as privacy, security and governance, governance uh, that are often different in various countries. Yeah, uh, and we are slowly running out of our time, but let's conclude our conversation by talking about your presentation at the conference that we organized in April. Could you please tell us more about what would be topic of your presentation and what the audience can learn if they attend your talk? Right, so I'm going to be talking about Apache Iceberg and Shopify's adoption of Iceberg. And I've been to lots of conferences where people have done talks about how Iceberg works. And I'm definitely going to touch on that, but I'm not going to, that's not going to be the focus of my talk. What I want the focus to be is more broadly about how do you, what considerations should you make to actually storing your data? You know, what are the benefits of Iceberg? But also if you're adopting it, what other things can you start thinking about? One of the things that we started thinking about was, you know, should we store all our data sets in a single bucket? Should we think about actually having a bucket per data set? That might sound kind of wild, but at the same time, this gives you a lot of insight into who's accessing that data set. What is the cost? It's really, it's much easier to get the cost of what that data set is costing you. You can then forward this bill to, you know, teams. Do you really need this data? Honestly, I think that 80% of the data that we collect isn't being used and isn't worth keeping around. And I'm sure this is a common feeling uh, between data engineers, but being able to have the, like, setting up things in such a way that you can actually uh, calculate this. Even like access, you know, um, we always like to think that we will never have a bad actor internally in, in the company but it's always entirely possible. So being able to trace the steps of who accessed exactly what and when, this becomes much easier. Um, and then permissions, you know, every company will have some sort of sensitive information that they're keeping around and making sure that that's isolated properly. So when we adopted Iceberg, these were a lot of the big questions that we asked ourselves to rethinking of how we would architect our data lake. So this is what I also want to, to talk about um, during the talk. It sounds very interesting and I'm sure it would be a very practical presentation based on real challenges and problems that you have solved. So I encourage everyone to attend this presentation uh, in Warsaw. Uh, you also mentioned something interesting that around 80% of the data that is collected is probably not useful. I have a similar feeling and this, not only, this is not only related to the data collection part because later you have many data processing steps uh, that generate many intermediate data sets. So I'm sure that everyone can find many data sets in his or her own data lake that are not needed uh, because they were generated as a byproduct of ETL or analytics pipelines or maybe some ad hoc queries or maybe even automatically generated uh, new versions of your machine learning models when prototyping and uh, training those models. 
for instance, when I work at Spotify, uh, we have accumulated so many of no longer useful data sets and we later needed to implement it, uh, implement a special tool to discover the data sets that are no longer consumed by anyone and uh, delete them. So any automatic tool that can uh, discover data sets that are no longer useful for anyone and remove uh, them quickly uh, will save tons of money to any company. Yeah, I feel like this whole idea of purging and putting limitations on data collection or like historical data, this is like a maturity, company maturity thing where I think really early on, people are really scared. They may not be using it, but they're like, one day, one day I can envision this team coming along and doing something really interesting with the data. And it takes a lot of maturity to say, to put their, for someone high up, to put their foot down and say, no, um, it's time to let go. Yeah. Yes, you need to be very pragmatic because otherwise you will have so many useless data sets in your data lake and they will cause many problems for people who consume them. Yeah, and like at Shopify, you know, specifically just the data sets that are produced by my team, we're talking in the magnitude of we produce eight to 10,000 unique data sets and those are raw right, that we manage. And then you can imagine how many data sets are produced like afterwards, the modeled or machine learning stuff. So it's it's a huge amount of stuff to keep track of and to clean up and manage. Absolutely. Now I would like to thank you, Victoria, for speaking with me in this podcast episode and especially for sharing your knowledge with our audience. Thank you very much for this. If you are interested in new episodes of Radio Data, please follow us on Acast, Spotify and other podcasting platforms. Also visit gettingdata.com to find more information about other ways that we gather and share the knowledge.